peace. Others now draw near unto my story. Approach you here, each loyal Southerner's heart to cheer with the victory gained at Shiloh. Oh, it was on March the sixteenth day, in spite of a long and muddy way, we landed. Radio with Jerry Prokopovich. Our guest today needs no introduction. The author of Hard Luck Ironclad, The Sinking and Salvage of the USS Cairo, and numerous other books, chief historian of the National Park Service from 1981 to 1995, and the undisputed king of battlefield guides. Join us for a talk with Edwin C. Bars on Civil War Talk Radio. efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Remember when you laughed during a business conference? You felt more energized, more alert, and more receptive to the message being delivered. Hi, I'm Russ Dalnack, and I make people laugh. And as a professional humorous speaker, I open up a morning conference session with a laugh or close off the day with a funny recap. It's it's just a one-of-a-kind experience. Visit RussIsFunny.com right now. Get an audience into it. You know, if they're laughing, it's paying big dividends. They're more relaxed, they're more creative, and if nothing else, a humorous speaker leaves each and every one of them with a smile on their face. You need comedy. Custom, clean, clever comedy. Otherwise, your audience might just doze off. <laughs> just imagine, if you had to listen to hours of serious commentary without a break, come on, pack some upbeat energy into your next event. Humor works. Find me, Russ Dalnack, at russisfunny.com because, well, Russ's chubby.com was taken. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from my office on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but speaking only for myself, not for the producers of Civil War Talk Radio or the university or our guest today. Before we get to our guest, a uh, Reminder that, as always, donations are welcome at Civil War Talk Radio to help pay for some of the fixed expenses we have. I try to avoid the donation plug, but every once in a while it seems a good idea to to put that in. 
And next, a news comment. Since most people listen to the show on archives, it's not a good idea to give news stories that are topical today but will be out of date tomorrow. But sometimes there's an exception. And this is one that came across the email on February 24, 2006, a statement from the Civil War Preservation Trust that they have received a gift from the estate of Brian Pohanka, uh, the well-known preservationist and interpreter and historian uh, who died in 2005. In his will, uh, Brian left the Civil War Preservation Trust a bequest totaling $1 million earmarked for battlefield land acquisition. Now that news item will go stale over time, and if you're listening to this on an archive, uh, from the archives months, even years into the future, it's still news that ought to be remembered. Uh, this is a certainly a generous gift that can only do a great deal of good for the preservation cause, uh, just as Brian Prohanka did a great deal of good for the cause while he was alive. The, the good continues. So I thought I would share that with everyone as uh, a cheering way to start the weekend, that the effort to preserve battlefields goes on. Well, our guest today, as noted uh, in the introduction, literally needs no introduction, Ed Bars. And indeed, I, if I didn't introduce him at all but simply said hello, uh, you might know who I'm talking to just by that. Ed, are you there? Yes. How are you doing today? Very good. I appreciate you coming on the show. It was a pleasure to see you a few weeks ago when you came down to North Carolina to talk about the Battle of Stones River to one of the, the roundtable groups here. And, uh, it's always a pleasure to get around to talk to groups, to see my old friends like you and others down there in uh, Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. Well, that, that was uh, certainly a great program. Now, you're... Your story is known to uh, just about anyone who reads about the Civil War, goes to Civil War battlefields, but just to put it on the record, uh, share with us where uh, where you come from and, and how you got started in, in the Civil War world. I was born on a cattle ranch in Montana uh, in 1923, uh, became interested in the Civil War, uh, when I was in the seventh grade, my father liked to read uh, out loud. We had no, our nearest neighbors were three miles off, and he read uh, John Thomason's uh, biography of uh, Jeb Stewart, and I was captivated from then on. Yeah, it's interesting. I was in eighth grade, uh, some years after that, I should say, and I think it was in Ernest Hemingway's uh, Men at War anthology that he had some sections from John Thomason's uh, later book. Now, what was it? Lone Star Preacher. Yes. Which was a, a novel, fictionalization of a, a Texas uh, chaplain. And that had much the same effect on me, it, it, along with the, the wonderful maps in Bruce Canton's centennial history. The, the prose of, of John Thomason just, just pulled me into that era. So, now, we, so we had... Uh... It's kind of interesting. Both of us were introduced to the Civil War uh, by John Thomason. And Thomason was himself, uh, he wrote also about the First World War and the Marines. Yes, he was a uh, Marine officer in World War uh, I, uh, saw a lot of action at Bellow Wood, 
stayed in the Marine Corps after uh, World War One during the uh, interwar years, and uh, that's the period when he wrote Jeb Stuart. Most of his writings outside of Lone Star Preacher and Jeb Stuart were on the Marine Corps, either uh, uh, his own experiences in the Marine Corps or other characters in the Marine Corps. Uh, I believe he died about 1944. Now, uh, you also served in the Marine Corps. Yes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Well, that was always a good experience. Uh, I have a, my family has a tradition of being in the Marine Corps at least uh, since the Spanish-American War, uh, every generation, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, the experiences of the Marine Corps uh, are uh, uh, caused me uh, also to uh, uh, have a rapport with uh, the. Uh, the Civil War soldiers. They, uh, it's a uh, kind of a uh, uh, fraternity that people who have been shot at have. Whether I don't, I don't recommend that as a introduction to uh, the Civil War, but it gives you a special feeling for it. Well, I, I can only imagine that. I'm, I'm have not had that experience, and, and hope never to do so. Certainly, uh, but you, you not only uh, were shot at, you were in combat. Uh, in the Pacific in the Second World War and, and wounded as well. Yes, I was shot at and hit, and, and actually it was a, as I look at it, it was a uh, uh, learning experience uh, because I was in a hospital uh, for, uh, 50, uh, for 26 months. They had an excellent uh, library at uh, the San Diego Naval Hospital, and that's where I was introduced to uh, uh, Douglas Southall Freeman, uh, uh, he had his R.E. Lee, of course, published in 1935, and just at the time I was in the hospital, Lee's Lieutenants was coming out in 1944. So I had got a lot of time to read. Those those are magnificent works. The uh, the, the idea of telling Lee's story from his own point of view, uh, in some ways, echoes what you do on the battlefield, where you see things from from the ground, not not the helicopter view that we get. Yes. From. And that uh, you have to realize, uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, Lee uh, Freeman is a uh, is very uh, Confederate oriented, and uh, for a number of years I was uh, Eastern oriented in the Civil War. Uh, but uh, when I uh, first uh, found out, I got to. Uh, uh, Vicksburg. That once held us back, but we find that we uh, live in a, a world a that is free of stress and worry. Why I thought we were going to be in because a we've risen studio. above the line. Yeah, technical for... problem here, Ed. Hang on just a second. Uh, hopefully, the the talk radio people can get that noise out of the way there. I'm sorry about that. Uh, okay. You you got to Vicksburg. I got to Vicksburg, and that of course, uh, 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 seeing I'm at Vicksburg, I had. Uh, Better uh, get familiar with the uh, campaigns in the West uh, uh, and uh, get to know a new set of personalities uh, and uh, see how they uh, meshed with what I had uh, uh, visited and seen and read about in the East. And then I became uh, uh, a little more balanced, or I might be said to become uh, more Western-oriented than after being Eastern-oriented until about 19. Uh, 55 when I arrived at Vicksburg National Military Park. Well, you're, you're very welcome on the show then where I, I find uh, a Western bias tends to creep in. 
Uh, we've had folks like Richard McMurray and uh, Stephen Woodworth, Larry Daniels, uh, all people writing interesting things about the Western theater. And it does seem to me the field as a whole is recognizing today that, that the Western theater really was uh, at least as significant, if not more so, than the East. Yes, I think that's a, uh, a learning experience that we have seen uh, uh, in uh, the uh, last, uh, since, particularly uh, uh, since, uh, since uh, uh, the years immediately uh, after the Civil War centennial. It's been a realization, as you pointed out, for scholarship, uh, uh, for interest of the, uh, of the visiting public in the uh, uh, the Western theater of the war uh, uh, gets a uh, get, brings a more of a balance to the war, which had been formally uh, most of the writings uh, uh, had been focused, as you just mentioned, on the Eastern theater. Now you played a role in that uh, with the discovery of a federal gunboat. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, please. Well, uh, one of my uh, early experiences in this, and at least as a professional historian for the National Park Service, was at Vicksburg in uh, 1956. I'd arrived at Vicksburg in September 1955, and the superintendent there, uh, James McConaughey, uh, was interested in where the uh, Cairo might be. My predecessor at Vicksburg had uh, been given a mission of uh, seeing if he, what he could find out about it, and I uh, inherited it, and, uh, and it uh, uh, played a good part of my career, uh, uh, both on my own time and government time, uh, for uh, a considerable time up till 1964. The actually... Uh, the paper trail that led to the, our myself and two companions' rediscovery of the Cairo uh, site of its sinking was really the easiest part of the story, uh, because uh, uh, when we found it, we uh, we did not know what type of condition the vessel was in. It was uh, buried in the in the bed of the Yazoo River, which is as muddy a river as there is in the United States. And at the time, that time, we uh, marked the site using uh, uh, triangulation with uh, targets attached to ba- uh, to trees on the banks. But when we went back with more uh, people with of interest in 1960, because of the sloughing of the bank and tipping the trees and the markers. Uh, only a few degrees, it actually took us longer to relocate the Cairo in 1960 than to find it in 1956. Then it became the long campaign in which money was a, uh, was both, uh, was the, uh, was, uh, important ingredient, uh, uh, to raise the vessel. We finally, uh, uh, brought most of the vessel up, uh, by, uh, by 1964. Uh, because of the uh, problems involved, lack of money, uh, we were not successful in bringing her up in uh, Toto. Uh, we brought her up in three pieces. And you can see those pieces now at Vicksburg. Yeah, so the vessel has been uh, restored and is positioned at, uh, at Vicksburg at the, at the National Military Park. Uh, what we did in the restoration of the vessel, they did like to do in a Articulated uh, dinosaur uh, skeleton at uh, 
in like at Field Museum, uh, we used a uh, laminated wood uh, uh, to give the, uh, which of course has a different color to support the, the historic fabric of the vessel as she is laid out. When when the ship's remnants were underwater, did you do any diving? Uh, no, I am not a diver. Uh, I uh, went down uh, with some help and uh, felt on her, but I uh, but actually any significant diving I did not do. I, I uh, dived sure. later on in clear waters, but uh, the, 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 this was uh, water in which you had to do everything by feel. I see. The uh... I was curious about that because here at East Carolina University, we have a maritime studies program that does underwater archaeology. I guess there's only a few of those programs. It's a very distinguished uh, program. Uh, uh, It's a, I would say, uh, without uh, worrying about uh, uh, arousing envy, that I think your uh, program there is uh, is the. Acme at the top of uh, underwater archaeology in the in the, in the Western Hemisphere, uh, if as well as the United States. Well, that, that that's kind to hear, and I, I certainly enjoy working closely with my colleagues, people like Brad Rogers and others in the maritime area, uh, and Larry Babbitts, and, and discussing uh, battlefields. Larry's also a great battlefield. Yes, yeah, it's a wonderful well. book he did on cowpan. Yes, splendid. The uh, not to, to delve off the Civil War, but there's a current controversy going on here with the uh, the remains of a ship that may or may not be uh, the flagship of the pirate Blackbeard, the Queen Anne's Revenge, uh, that was discovered about a decade ago. And to this day, there's still some there's considerable debate among the faculty here and and some of the people who've done the diving and the actual uh, recovery. And it just shows that that. History is a living thing. There's always something to be argued about. Yes, that's uh, as, as, as for many years, uh, like the discovery of the Hunley. There, uh, uh, the uh, the drawings of the Hunley were fairly accurate, believed to be accurate until they brought the Hunley up. That's right, and showed it was not quite the shape uh, imagined. Yes. Now, uh, so the, the Cairo, on the other hand, you brought that up. That looked uh, as one expected a. It looked uh, generally as expected, uh, but but it was much more heavily armored uh, than we believe. That was one of our problems because the the plans that we that w- were available showed the plans as designed. And in constructing the Cairo, they wrote 122 change orders, and some of these change orders would be uh, very insignificant. Uh, some were quite significant, such as adding about uh, 30 tons of armor to the vessel. I suppose if, if you looked at uh, the plans for some of the material being used in, in the war in Iraq uh, as we speak, and compare it to what the troops in the field do as expedients to up-armor their their vehicles, yeah. uh, you get the same kind of effect. Yeah, because that is the, that's where, uh, and the wonderful thing is that you've seen, now when I first came to work for the Park Service, uh, there was very little communication, and I think it probably extended in the academic field between the historians and the archaeologists. The historians mm-hmm. uh, w- w- that rely on documents, so-called a paper trail, and the archaeologists that rely on material culture that is found in the ground. And for many years, 
they hardly spoke uh, to one another, uh, which was a, uh, a great loss uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, liberal arts, a great loss uh, to, uh, to uh, coming up with a uh, good view, because I think the big breakthrough uh, came uh, on, uh, on uh, archaeology and, and history occurred at the Battle of the Little Bighorn uh, with the archaeology, the archaeological project that was inaugurated in 1983, following a uh, a uh, following a ground fire that burnt over 600 acres of land there, and uh, there were historians who opposed the archaeological work there. Uh, arguing that uh, nothing more could really be found, and the archaeologist uh, uh, found a great deal. And, I, and since you mentioned Brian Bohanka, uh, he was—that uh, was really—that uh, was his favorite park of all. Ed, I'm going to interrupt you just for a second. We're going to take a short break here on Civil War Talk Radio, and come back and talk uh, about these subjects. We'll get—we'll mention Brian and Little Bighorn and many other things in the career of Ed Bars when we come back in a moment on Civil War Talk Radio.